0: This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our times to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do.
1: To you by your host and Srajid, and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich.
0: In today's episode, we were delighted to have Hessen Lavi as our guest. Hesim is the CEO and co-founder of Climatic, a company that engineers and develops a carbon footprint intelligence platform. Hesim is no stranger to the world of venture building. After graduating from university and working at Google for several years, he founded two successful startups, JobSpotting and Berlin Startup Jobs, that shaped the future of the recruitment industry in Europe. After making a successful exit to California-based smart recruiters, Hessem founded Climatic in 2021. Climatic is an open-source, free-to-use emissions database that aspires to be the Wikipedia of carbon footprinting. Through an integration with its API, trusted emissions data can be accessed to calculate the emissions footprint of an organization in real-time. During the course of this episode, we spoke about several topics that make Hessem's journey unique. We learned about his voyage from Warton, Iran to Sweden to Ireland, and finally to Berlin. We also took deep dives into the learnings that he drew from being a serial entrepreneur, how he built successful startups in the very competitive recruiting industry, and what it means to be an entrepreneur in the climate tech space today. Hesem dislikes being run-of-the-mill with his answers, and his views on several of these topics are unique and truly refreshing. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation that Anne and I
2: had with Hesem Lavi.
1: Hi Hassam, we're actually super excited to kick off this season with you as our first guest today.
2: Hi Anne, hi Swajid, I'm really excited to be here. This is actually my first podcast, so I'm really excited about the conversation.
0: All right, so Hassan, you moved from Iran to Sweden at the age of 12, and then you spent the remainder of your formative years in Sweden. Tell us more about your experiences in these two countries, and what is it like to change countries at such a young age?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the best way I can explain this is a real life changing experience. And I think most of us, luckily, we we'll go through our lives in a pretty safe environment and live a pretty safe life and don't have to go through this oftentimes uh, challenging situations that you hear about on the news about wars, about conflicts across the world where it actually forces a lot of people to move and migrate. So, just to give you a background of myself so, I was born. In the first year after the revolution in Iran, where a long-standing monarchy was replaced by Islamic fundamentalist rule. If that doesn't sound bad enough, basically six months after I was born, Iran-Iraq war broke out, which affected us heavily because we actually lived in the area of the country which was near the border and was very close to the war zones. But obviously, as a child, you don't really think about it the way grown-ups do. As a child, you are play with your toys, you have your friends, you hang out with your parents, and so on. And these are basically based on the thoughts and the insights that I gained after the fact. So when I grew up and really trying to understand and analyze the situation, where you realize that everything you remember about your childhood was really surrounded by one topic, which was the war and conflict. Just to give you an example of what we're talking about here, is you can think of how the pandemic has, has affected us the last two years, right? You hear about the news you might get ill yourself your studies or work situation changes because of it. you might even lose your job uh, you might lose friends who pass away and basically this is really something that becomes a major part of your life and as how sad it is it is really reality things like my school was bombed right and this was at that age when i was around eight or nine it's funny to say today it was not a big deal because like, oh, school is closed we have t- we have time to play i don't have to go to school but of course if you if you put yourself in the situation of being a parent or being an older person when you kind of like really understand the effect of it it was really a terrifying terrifying period and when i moved to sweden you know, as i mentioned it was really a life-changing experience because for the first time in my life you really felt safe you really felt that you were out of danger for the first time in your life. I'm really grateful that in terms of the people that I interact with on a daily basis, most of them have not gone through that kind of experience because that feeling to not feel safe, it's something that can really wear you down.
0: Wow, that's, that's really amazing, especially the way in which you end up drawing an analogy with the pandemic for the rest of us. I believe that that is also perhaps an understatement that you're making over there, but still an extremely riveting story that you tell.
1: One thing I wonder is you just said that as a child, you don't really feel harsh experiences in the same way that adults do. And you didn't think of your past as terrifying because it was just your daily life. So did living in uncertainty shape the kind of person you are today? Did it change how you feel towards risk, for instance, or would you say that a risky situation is the same for you than for anybody else?
2: No, absolutely. I would say it shames people in a different way as well. I recently was listening to a podcast where somebody describing the life after World War II and how different families dealt with it very differently. Some families felt very rejuvenated and happy to finally be free and the war is over and others felt very depressed. And that really is not something that you can say this is exactly how it affects everybody. So one is that kind of a feeling of uncertainty is something that I think about often. If I really think of my thoughts on a daily basis, how I make decisions, you will definitely look for situations where you you want to be out of danger. And you know, it sounds very primitive and it's not necessarily those words or those thoughts that go through my head. But if I look at a decision I've made over time, choosing career paths, studying certain things, moving different places has been oftentimes with the aim of creating safety, creating certainty for myself, for my family, and for my uh, you know, future. At the same time, you know, it also helped me to really stay humble and also to it helps you to learn to be, I think the word is grit is, is the part of it. And another way, is, another way to describe it is that things that maybe other people that have not gone through traumatic experiences might feel upset about you have a kind of a slightly different reference point. So you put things into, into context. When, when certain days, when mm-hmm. things are difficult, when work is hard or when a pandemic happens, you can turn around and say, well, at least we're safe, right? And these are, I think it's very important to always stay anchored in reality and sometimes kind of remember that even though when things feel difficult, there could always be a worse situation available that would make things a lot worse.
1: And then you just said that this shapes the career that you choose and your studies as well. And of course, I wonder, your professional journey started at Google, in a way quite corporate, and you could say safe. Would you say you joined Google because of that desire to create certainty and
2: safety for you? So I studied computer science in Sweden, and actually a week after I graduated, I moved to Dublin and started working for Google. And and the reason I moved right away was really because during my studies, I had the privilege to go to Canada for a year as as an exchange student. And if if you think of when I moved as a child from Iran to Sweden, that was really kind of a first major step to come into a new culture. And the next step was definitely the year I spent abroad during my studies. Because that really you know expanded my views in terms of the various opportunities across the world and not being so focused into a particular physical location that you're in and after that year I decided that as soon as I'm done I definitely want to take a step out and kind of really go for go for something bigger and so a week after I graduated I moved to Dublin and I started working at Google and back then the the office in Dublin was only around two to three hundred people so if you think about you know how large the company is today and how how much they've grown this is back in 2005 so the company was still not that corporate yet. When I joined Google, frankly enough, I didn't know what job that I would be doing because the role that I was hired for was was kind of a secret team within Google itself. Google being a search engine, it was very much focused on this automatic way to rank websites and really figure out what are the most relevant websites for each keyword and rank them up using algorithms. But in reality, if you think of how the word, word, World Wide Web is built, there's always gonna be lots of people who are trying to game, game the system. We're trying to game the algorithms to uh, push up their website and really trying to cheat, cheat their way out. So we were hired to be kind of an internal uh, police force to kind of find out about this uh, various spammy behavior across the web and find solutions for them that can be implemented into the algorithms. So when I joined, the company was very small. So it was not that corporate and it was very much operating as a startup, particularly that small team that I was in. And it was growing extremely fast. So almost on a weekly basis, we had maybe sometimes 10 people joining every week. So the company was growing really, really quickly. And by the time I left, I think the Dublin office was over 10,000 people.
0: Would you say that you've been passionate about computer science as a field?
2: No, not not necessarily. I think passion is a term that I, that I don't really like because I think it introduces some friction in the way that people think. Or I feel some people think of passion as kind of a prerequisite to do anything. During my professional career, I've come across plenty of people who are not passionate about their work. They have other passions, but they're extremely good at what they do, and they really perform really well they take their job seriously and they have a huge amount of impact but their real passion if you think of passion as something that you think about all the time can very well be something else sometimes when you when you read some business books or you hear listen to podcasts or it sounds like if you're not passionate you have to really find your passion and before you found that passion you should stay put and and trying to figure it out which which i think is not very productive
0: I like the fact that it's contrary to popular opinion, and and it takes uh, some amount of courage to say something that is uh, relatively unpopular. It's great that you're phrasing it that way. But let's maybe come back to your journey and talk about the time in 2009. So you were at Google from 2005 to 2009, and then uh, you moved from Dublin to Berlin, where you eventually founded companies for the next 12 years. How did you make this decision that you would want to move to this other city and How would you say the startup ecosystem in Berlin has evolved over the course of the last decade?
2: I think the decision to move came very natural to me. As you heard so far, me lived in different cultures, different countries. Definitely gives you that confidence that you can actually go anywhere and feel at home. And uh, so after four years at Google, I was reaching a position where I felt that the next big step had to be outside of Google. And looking back, it was definitely the right choice. And the startup scene was very new. It was very nascent and just getting started. And it also really helped me to get in contact with a lot of the founders that were getting started then and also just to be really part of this major wave that came.
0: Hmm, That's quite interesting because most people I hear moving to Berlin today, it's a consequence of the fact that the startup ecosystem over there is thriving and quite strong. But that was probably not necessarily true back then. So you had a different set of reasons and motivations in terms of why you chose to move to the place, right?
2: Yes, it is true. That is the case. And also part of it is that is an international city. I didn't speak German. I didn't know anybody in Berlin. And uh, so I felt it was the easier way to get accustomed and to get settled in the city because they knew there was going to be a lot more international people in terms of a location being kind of a center, central place in Europe where you have equal distance to travel almost in every direction of Europe.
1: Talking about Berlin is already the perfect transition into talking a bit more about your first venture, specifically because you got started in Berlin. And I wonder what was founding startup jobs like for you back then? Were there any things that you wish you had known before founding or were there any surprises?
2: As I mentioned, when I moved to Berlin, I didn't speak German, I didn't know anybody. I found it really challenging to find out about what's going on in in the startup scene. And very quickly, I figured out there is a problem that more people have. From having moved from Dublin and Google, there were several of my colleagues that were interested in the city and who asked me about cool, cool companies that were hiring or whether what are the different up and coming skills or a type of companies and coming. So I figured out this definitely would be cool if there was an English speaking resource that people can can use. If I look at all the different projects and companies I've started, that always has been a problem that I can relate to. So we really are trying to you know solve problems for myself, problems that I that I have and I can I can really feel it is a tangible problem. So I really saw this need to really connect international talent with this scene that was up and coming. I really thought about if if you look at London, how the startup scene looks like, do we believe that Berlin can do something similar? And the answer to for me was yes. And in that sense, I definitely very early saw that if we would reach the same scale in terms of number of companies, in terms of number of employees that are going to be needed, definitely these people need to come from abroad because because the German tech scene, the German culturally also you can see that Oftentimes still a lot of university graduates don't necessarily look to start up as their first job. This has changed obviously, but back then it was, it was even more. So I started this, I started to put together a job board, a very simple job board, and the first version was actually built with Google Forms. So it was really nothing fancy. I wouldn't call the startup or a venture. It was really a project that I started on my free time and coded myself. And after a couple of days, it was live. And. I remember meeting one of the a VC that had recently moved to Berlin because Berlin was up and coming and we met, we had coffee, and he asked me what I was working on. And I just had my laptop with me. I said, Hey, I just started this website for the Berlin Berlin Tech scene with jobs. And so oh, that's pretty cool. So he took a photo of it and tweeted it back then. And you know, this is 2010, late 2010. So he, he tweeted a picture of this and what happened next was TechCrunch picked it up and retweeted it, and then all of a sudden, the website just had tons of, tons of traffic. So it was really a lot of coincidence, and, or maybe be the right place at the right time, that, that led to the job board just really taking off, because as this kind of, if you think of a, a platform, a two-sided platform where you need candidates looking for jobs, and you need job opportunities to really connect them, and this is something that I had as a side project while I was working in other companies and other startups, predominantly and for for almost two years, I didn't make any money off the of the job board because it was free. It was free to post jobs. I just thought this was just a really cool thing for founders, for companies who are setting up, to be able to attract international talent who are looking to move to Berlin. And the same for people myself. And really through getting feedback from some of these founders, say, hey, maybe you should charge for this. This is extremely useful. I remember visiting an office in Mitte where... The founder kind of pointed at people and said, "This guy moved from Brazil through your website. This guy came from Israel and he found the job through your site." And that was really the first time I could tangibly feel the value that I was—that such a project can create. Because oftentimes with these digital tools, it's very difficult to kind of create these tangible things that you can really feel and touch and how it's actually impacting people on the other side. And that was really such an amazing feeling that I had for the first time, where I really thought that this is, this is such a great thing to have built and it's actually useful for so many different people and really has the ability to change people's lives.
0: I just did a quick Google search on the site and I saw that LinkedIn was founded in 2003, which means that in 2011 or 13, when you founded Berlin Startup Jobs, you already had LinkedIn as a competitor. How did that impact your business and in general, what do you think about the idea of founding in a space where there is already this tech giant of sorts that exists? And how did you go about differentiating yourself?
2: Sure. So the job world was started in 2011. And not only LinkedIn existed, but lots of other job sites. On one side, you can, you can argue that if you don't have competitors, you might be in the wrong market, because competitors mean there is a demand and there is an opportunity for businesses to be, to be built. What we have seen over the years is definitely the strength of niche marketplaces. There is this famous image where somebody took Craigslist and basically broke out all the different categories of Craigslist and put a logo on a huge company that was built on top of it. So I think you can look at it very similarly there, that if you're really focusing on one particular topic, which is large enough to build a business around, you can definitely be successful. And for, for me, I mean, just to reiterate, I didn't have major plans with starting a company around jobs in Berlin. this was something that I just felt was a cool thing to do and and a useful website to build. But if you look at it, if you really can target and laser focus on one topic, uh, you can definitely create interest and uh, generate interest around it and get people to use it.
0: And if I may ask, what was the focus point for you back then? Was it primarily the fact that this geography, meaning Western Europe, didn't have the kind of traction for LinkedIn that perhaps the US did. So even having a business model or a product very similar to LinkedIn's, you could survive over here? Or was there a specific focus point that allowed you to differentiate yourself from competition such as LinkedIn?
2: I think the focus point was that for the first time, there was something that was really focused on tech startups. If you're a tech company and hiring, you don't necessarily want to be, have your job listed among next to Siemens or Daimler or some other boring big company. You're using a different language. You're presenting a different ideas. You have different visions and different drives. So, therefore, you're also looking for different kind of people. So, if you're a startup and you looking to hire somebody through some of those traditional job boards, it's very likely that you would get the wrong candidates because those people might not really understand the challenges or the opportunities with startups. They might not. They might have certain expectations in terms of structure, in terms of things, things that, that are just very common in one sector that is less so in something else. So it's really kind of optimizing for, for both use cases because also as an employee, so let's say you're a developer or you're a product manager or you're a designer, you don't necessarily looking for a general job. You you have a certain interest or you have a certain vision in terms of what type of environment you want to be working in, what type of people you want to have be surrounded with in your team. And if you're interested in startups, then you're looking for that kind of job so it's just also much easier that you have that filter somebody had gives you that corrected list of companies within a similar sector to choose from
1: so did having this really specific filter then lead basically into job spotting
2: so what happened was at the same time i had two of my former colleagues at google and left google and moved to berlin we started discussing of ideas of things we can do together and i basically pitched them this idea of morphing merging two different te- technologies together, which one part was a job board and the second one was a recommendation engine. And if you, back then, Facebook was big, Pinterest, well, Pinterest is still big. But one thing that they did really well was as a user, you could log into those platforms and they would give you a very personalized experience. They would figure out what you're interested in and be able to filter out the noise and give you a subset of those content, those images and those posts that they think you would like to interact with. And we thought, why not doing that for careers? Because if a candidate is looking for a job, they're looking to either they either come out of university or maybe they're in a job that they don't really like and want to move, there's definitely sort of things that they will, be, they will be interested in. So let's use the technology to make that experience much more inspiring and much easier. So if you think of a regular job search, you will have to come in and enter a couple of keywords and they will give you the jobs back. Which... Feels feels very old school if you think of in 2022, the amount of AI and machine learning and technology that has, that has been built. And that, that's really what we set out to build with JobSpotting. It really kind of a smart job search engine we would understand your interest and your skills and be able to match it with the right jobs. And that it will also get smarter the more, the more you use it. So every time you click on a job, every time you save something, every time you would remove or delete something from your recommended list, you would kind of take that as a cue to figure out uh, whether we can make, improve our recommendations.
1: And would you say it was as easy to create a hype basically as for the startup job board? Did you have a VC tweet again or was it more
2: a <laughs> conscious build up this time? <laughs> it was It was a lot harder, obviously. No, I mean, we were definitely lucky because again, the topic of people looking for jobs and companies hiring, it is so profound to how the economy is economy's working. So there's always people are looking for new solutions and improved ways of doing it. So what we did, you know, we founded this company, Jobspotting was founded in 2014 and it was three co-founders and we joined uh, a startup accelerator and raised some VC money and focus was very much on the product to, to kind of, to really build that optimal experience for finding jobs and connect, connecting people with the right companies. And when you set out to solve these really important problems, then it's easy to get supporters because people are rooting for you, they like your product, they like how you are changing their lives. So obviously it's a it's a gratifying experience.
0: So in the chronology of things, in 2013 you founded job spotting, you scaled it all the way till 2017, and then it got acquired by smart recruiters. And then you continued to stay on over there for a few more years. How was the process of your own company getting acquired and how is it to continue to stay on as an employee? of that company in the leadership, I assume, of uh, some other people?
2: I think there's a topic that we can discuss for hours. I would probably explain it the best as you have mixed emotions because on the positive side, it's very much of a, a great feeling to know that something you've built will be used in a bigger context. So when we exited a company to smart, smart Recruiters, which is a enterprise SaaS company for HR tech, Today is is a unicorn and based out of San Francisco, Berlin, and London, and in Poland as well. At the same time, it feels like you're giving your baby away, right? So it's something that uh, you've spent years to tweaking and building and improving, and through an acquisition, you're not in control anymore. And this is something that it's just a reality of business. It's not something that I feel necessarily bad about. It's just part of the startup business, and... I uh, definitely worked out really well. the S- Smart Recruiters is extremely successful in this in this sector. And all the products and the technology that we built has been further developed and used today as we speak in really th- some of the largest companies in the world.
0: So you continued to stay on as an employee at the Smart Recruiters. What was that experience like? I suspect that there were a lot of mixed emotions over there because you or the person who founded this company and now it's in the leadership of other people. It sounds a lot like an emotional roller coaster. Was it one? How was your experience?
2: No, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as an emotional roller coaster. I think it's really a matter of mindset. So in terms of when you say the word employee or a leadership or a leader or a founder, I think most of these things really can be a state of mind. It's how you perceive yourself. And again, like we were very, very lucky to join the company and I was working. Very closely with the founder and this and the CEO, and who we are managing uh, a very much of a you know independent team that was really focused on building machine learning and AI features. But yeah, I mean, it is it is a difference. I mean, one positive side is that all of a sudden you're not responsible for everything, which is a great feeling. you can definitely have a bigger team to to work with and outsource some of your admin admin tasks and just just be able to ask for help and support when you when you need it. So that's a really, really great feeling. And other than that, it's just a a matter of staying efficient. You know, especially when you joining a larger company as a smaller team, it's just it's just very important to be able to adapt to the new situation and really looking at everything from in terms of opportunities. And and this is something that I think we did really well. And this is one of the reasons it worked out.
1: And I wonder because you just said that it's basically also a choice of mindset, and you are concerned for the mental health of founders and also part of the Mentoring Club in Berlin. What did you do, or what are you still doing, to balance your own mental health as a founder? And how do you unwind from the, I guess, daily stress that you've had so far?
2: Obviously, the mental health is a, is a major issue and is also an obstacle for for many people to stay productive and stay positive when they go through challenges of building companies, but just generally ge- through through life. We're talking about a pandemic, and and I think trouble at work probably is the least, sometime least of your worries these these days i think if if i think of myself i've been lucky to be surrounded by uh really great co-founders i think this is something that i would consider as a major recommendation for anyone who's looking to start a company is to not not go at it alone because it's extremely tough there is a lot of Day, there are a lot of topics and there are many days where you feel like that you need to speak to someone openly and sometimes your employees are not the right people uh, to go to. Uh, so having great co-founders really, really helped. At the same time, I have been lucky to have a family, have a child, and that really helps you in many different ways. One is it forces you to unwind, right? So you're coming on from work you're sitting and you're playing Lego and that's it. You need to switch off. You can't just continue looking at your phone and continue taking calls. There's gonna be a forced unwinding in terms of playing, in terms of just doing something else. So that really kind of forces you kind of just to be much more relaxed about things. And again, not just ta- not taking things too seriously. And that, I think that's just really, really important. And, it's, and another way I think is, has been valuable to me is it really forces you to stay humble. Uh, stay staying humble in terms of to to not taking yourself too seriously, and just to stay humble around all the challenges that life throws you every day.
1: I think it's really nice that you're one of the few guests so far who has been talking about parenthood in that way, because at the CDTM Ember we are recording this podcast, from often there's these questions of how do you balance life and work, and how do you balance kids and work, and it's often seen as a trade-off. And I really like the way that you just said it that. It's actually enriching and it's not a trade-off, but playing Lego can be the nicest part of your day after all.
2: Definitely. I think, again, like, I think this is really a matter of mindset. You can choose to see it as a trade-off. You can choose to it, see it as a part of life and the opportunity to grow in different ways. If you look at all of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, they all have families. Many of them started when they were in their 40s. So it's really nothing, nothing new. It's not a trade-off. It's really just a matter of, really building the skills and building the opportunities, but also at the same time, having a supporting network that can help you when you need. If, if you have that, then having a family and children is not necessarily a, a disadvantage. And the good thing with children is like, they have no filter. They tell you exactly what they feel about you and about themselves. And that, that, that is really sobering. You get the unfiltered view of people and it really can help you to develop skills to deal with employees and just to with yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting take on things. I actually also want to talk to you about your background and your studies in computer science. I have a background in computer science and people often tell me that computer science is proverbially considered the perfect background for a startup founder because you have all the tools to be able to build things. But I still imagine that despite all this, there would be a number of challenges and skill deficiencies that one would experience, perhaps on the business side of things. Was that the case with you? And if so, how were you ever able to overcome those?
2: Yeah, I think, I think having a computer science background helps, but it's definitely not su- sufficient. Because if you think of building a business, so not a product, not a, not a tool, not a software, but if you're thinking of building a business, the business really consists of many different parts. So, and of course, your, the product and your solution are building in one part of it. But being able to distribute your product, sell marketing, hiring people, and really managing a successful team, a productive team, are really challenges that probably some couple of years in university learning computer science is not going to teach you so i studied computer science i have a master's degree which is a four-year studies and and just to be completely honest i didn't really enjoy all those four years as much as i would like to i remember sometimes you go on the first day of a new course and you're sitting there and you're thinking Holy moly and I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned that there is no magic skill there is no magic tool to be successful if you think about what we do and even while you're a university oftentimes it's really about hard work and determination because most of the skills today can be can be taught there are there are great YouTube videos there are great seminars and books that, that can that can be read so it's really a matter of hard work and determination and just staying open-minded but also to be able to have the courage to ask for help when you need it.
1: All your past businesses have been centered around recruiting and the future of work, which is a domain where you have personally gathered a lot of experience. And now you've found it climatic. And I would personally say that these domains, HR and climate, are quite far well, away from each other. So what makes you feel that you are the right person to suddenly found in the climate tech space?
2: I certainly enjoy working on problems that I feel are real. And I, when I talk about real is things that I can really connect to my life, the life of my closest surrounding, my community, the city I live in, the country, and so on. And at the same time, I really, after going through the ups and downs of building companies, it's just really important to, to realize that you should be working on opportunities that leave a legacy after you. The climate crisis is so fundamental that like if we don't get things right none of those things matter. We're going to have much much bigger problems to deal with than the shortage of labor. I don't know if I'm the right person. For, for me it's, it's just just been very important to work on problems that matter and really work with other people who have the same mindset. So after exiting the company job spotting and the consequent 3 years, I was in this position where I quit and didn't have anything to do and and very quickly got bored and very quickly got bored and started talking to some of my friends, some of my former former team members about doing something new. And And within a couple of hours, we came to the topic of climate change, the climate crisis, and how it is really affecting affecting us. And uh, we all agreed that having the lessons of building a company, dealing with all the ups and downs, the challenges, we could only work on another problem where you feel very, very strongly about. And, you know, and the way I think about it is like, I would want to work on problems where I feel that even if I failed, I would be happy. I would be happy that I tried. And although it didn't work, I still did what I could do. And this is how I feel about the climate crisis. And I'm not an expert. And I think there's also a misconception with founders that externally that people think they're experts within a certain topics or have some magical skills. But oftentimes, these are people who are first of all driven and they have determination and the energy to to make a change and you partner with other people you partner with experts and this is what we've done with with my new company we hired really amazing people that helps help us along and of course again what I mentioned there is today no skills that can be taught and one of the major strengths that I see is there are people who've been successful in other areas and have transferable skills and entering into climate change and sustainability sector because I think this is some area that we need all the, all the skills and all the attention that we can get.
0: <laughs> I love how from the beginning of this episode, you've been shooting down some commonly held views. And I really, really admire the the contrarian view that you're taking on things. Cool. So you're clearly quite passionate about solving the climate crisis. And the next question that we have for you, this occurred to us while we were reading some articles that uh, some VCs had published recently. And these articles are you know, sarcastically saying good luck to all the VCs and startups who are hoping to solve the climate crisis with software alone. And the problem that they are hinting at is that an overwhelming percentage of VC-backed companies seem to have software as their product. So first of all, would you agree that making a dent in the climate crisis is extremely difficult with software alone? And if so, how do you think the startup ecosystem needs to change and evolve to accommodate these uh, changing times and these changing paradigms?
2: I think it's a fair criticism, but a criticism that I don't fully share. I think it's true that software alone will not fix the climate crisis. That is clear. But to give you an analogy, you know, again, if we're going to bring the topic back to the pandemic that we are living through right now, if you're looking at all the things that are happening, if you take an example of testing, right, you can say testing alone won't stop the pandemic, but it's absolutely a necessary tool to measure and manage the pandemic. Right? And nobody, mm-hmm. nobody can deny it. The same can be said about how software has been used through the pandemic. And considering that had this happened 20 years ago, it would be much, much harder to manage the way that it has done today. So I definitely think software will not alone fix it, but it's going to play a significant role. Because if you're looking at what happened with other business activities and considering that businesses are the major emitters of greenhouse gases, which is the major cause of the climate crisis that we are now, all these businesses across the world, again, the first truly global problem that we are seeing right now, is all businesses across the world are moving towards net zero, right? So they're going through not caring about their emissions, like whatever happens to my emissions, I don't care. I need products and services as cheap as possible to really have been forced by legislation and regulations to reduce their carbon emission to zero, and if you think about it for a second, just think about how transformative this is, how, and how this would affect the businesses themselves, their supply chains, their employees, their customers, and everyone around them. You really start reasoning that this is one of the biggest changes that we, the world is going through right now.
0: Would you, if given the opportunity, like to found a startup that uh, has hardware as its product?
2: I think that the challenges with building hardware businesses are significantly higher than software businesses because you need to iterate very quickly on your, on your idea based on feedback and based on the input of, the, of your customers. And doing this with hardware products, is just so much harder than, than, than mm-hmm. with software. And uh, so this is something in terms of if we're considering, if we're considering the, the timeline that we're in. And really what I'm really most excited about is to see a variety of ideas, a variety of focuses from different part of the industry, different part of the world, who are tackling the same problem from different angles. I don't think necessarily the solution is either or. I would suggest that if people really look at their skills and look at the strengths and really double down on those. So if somebody's strengths in mechanical engineering or hardware solutions, that's definitely something they should really focus on and really excel at. Because we need we need all the help that is that is needed.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that sounds fair enough. So let's maybe talk about the work that you guys are doing at Climatic. As I understand, Climatic is an open source and free to use emissions database. And in the future, you guys aspire to be the Wikipedia of carbon footprinting. This is quite different from the business models of your past ventures. And we are quite curious about this part of it being an open source database. Would you say that this decision of making it an open source database was perhaps a moral decision that even perhaps came at the expense of a competitive advantage? And how does it being an open source database really impact your business model in the long run?
2: So maybe I can start with telling you a little bit about Climatic, which is a carbon intelligence solution. So you can really think of it as a back-end solution to automate carbon emission measurements inside other software. Uh, And what we offer is an open database, as you mentioned, with all the scientific data that various researchers or government agencies have researched and published about the emission factors of various activities. The, and the next layer of that is we're offering a layer of computations to really make it easy to connect this data with real life activity. And the last layer is an API that helps you to integrate it inside other software. And the, the database that you mentioned, we decided to offer it as an open database. And uh, There are several reasons for this. The first reason for this is the data that you can find there today is already public. So these are the, the the German environmental agency or the corresponding agency in the UK or in France or United States that have already published this data. So we are taking this and the only right thing to do is to keep it open. And there are many companies in this area, other startups that we compete with in the same space that taking this data and putting behind the paywall. We don't think this is the right thing to do. And this was a decision we, we made early is that we definitely want to make sure that this data becomes more useful and more accessible to anybody who wants to build something with it. And the great thing about open data and open source in general is that it gives you the opportunity to solve every problem only once. And particularly if you think of the climate crisis that we are facing, we really cannot afford people reinventing the wheel over and over again. So for us, open source and open data is really the only way we can have the velocity and speed and the impact that we absolutely need within the next 8 years and until to 2050 to reach the goals that the world has set for its for itself. And so the open database really again it allows other people to quickly access the data and on top of it we are offering an API that can be used to connect this data into other software into other solutions and uh, applications to be to really surface carbon emission metrics in a way that helps companies to understand their footprint and taking steps to reduce it and and manage it effectively.
1: I do wonder though, because Srajit and me have both been product managers in in the past. Coming from the product perspective, I guess it's very different to build a product that is in the end an API, right? So what is different to having something that has a front end from the product management perspective?
2: You're basically struggling with the same challenges as any other business. One is to capture customer feedback, and two is to improve your product so it works for them. If you think of some of the really successful companies out there that are building an API, you think of Stripe, you could think of Twilio, you can think of Segment, and there's really countless number of software companies that where the main product is just an API, right? And this is something that is not new, it's been popular for for many many years, and there's been really large business that be able to capture it, because API is really nothing else, just a building block. It's really the, the pipes that are running running the internet. Everything, all software, all apps are built with various different APIs, and oftentimes mixing different products and services together to to really morph into a new product. So an API for us was necessarily more harder. It was actually the thing that made the most sense because what we when we got together. With, I have two co-founders, and when we got together to really discuss ideas and figure out what area we would want to tackle, we basically looked at the skills that we have, which is all about technology, data, and managing, managing just unstructured data. And when we're looking at what companies do in terms of decarbonization, we really see it as a data problem. Uh, data problem in a sense that most businesses today do not know what their carbon footprint is. They don't know how much they emit, They don't know how they compare to their competitors, and so on and so forth. So, if you don't know this number, it's just it's just going to be very hard for you to make any kind of decisions or even have an opinion about it, right? Uh, So, we're really looking at the data, and if you're looking at these complex businesses that oftentimes have a high amount of emission, so let's think about a manufacturing business or or a petrochemical or a chemical company. You really start seeing that the challenges for them to gather their operational data in a way that they can make sense of it. So they can really build custom solutions that fits their specific problem. Because if you're looking at the world, if you look at the different companies and sectors, they all have different problems. There's companies of different sizes, they have different processes they're using, they're in different countries. So it's very much not a one size fits all, it's really all custom problems. And the API allows us to really quickly build something that fits themselves best.
1: Looking at other companies, what I feel is pretty different for you is that you basically have this open source data set as a core. And I do wonder what you would recommend to other founders who want to build a business or a product around providing or building on open source data sets as well.
2: I think you can look at the open data and open source really as a strategy for growth as well, and not necessarily as a a risk factor or something that creates friction, because What open data really allows us to do is also to allow collaborators in. So this means that it's not going to be the team at Climatic. I mean, we already have senior experienced climate data scientists who work with this data, but it also allows us to welcome in other researchers, other agencies, collaborators who feel passionate about this problem to help us to grow that database and really, our business model is formed around other type of services and products that we offer on top of it. Because if you think of, again, if you take an example of a company who needs to reduce their carbon footprint and carbon emissions, really the first thing they do is to figure out their emissions today, to really set that benchmark. And based on that, they're going to be working on this problem for years to come to successfully bringing it down to zero, You know, we could talk about a process that could take 10, 15, 20, and sometimes longer. So really, you know, measuring your footprint is the first step. And we think as a company, we have the opportunity to partner with these companies from the beginning and really become, be the partner along this journey as they move towards net zero. And there's going to be many different products, many different solutions that we need on top of this, that we'll be able to help them build and be able to support them along so by next year around 50,000 new companies will have to disclose their carbon emissions publicly. Right? So, so that this number needs to and this number needs to be accurate and needs to be trustworthy. So carbon accounting is really is a new process similar to marketing, sales, HR. So these companies are creating new units, creating new resources, hiring people to really help them with carbon accounting, reduction and really managing those net zero goals. And today this is done predominantly by consultants, which is very, very manual. It's very time-consuming, and oftentimes using spreadsheets, using very basic forms that being email, emailed around to gather this data. So really, this what we see is a world where these tasks become more and more automated, so that companies can really focus on the impact they need to be making, and not necessarily on on the calculations. So we see carbon accounting to become more automated over time, and more based on software, and a lot less manual than than, than it is today. All right
0: then that already brings us as promised to the end of the third block. And we're gonna move into the fourth and the last block, which is uh, your toolbox. So what is one book that everyone should read?
2: That's a very hard question because I think there's people should read many, many books. And uh, if if I look at the kind of stuff I read is like I, pr- I try to not read business books because I find them often very boring and very long but there's definitely some great business books out there and if you read through a couple of them you realize that the core ideas could be summarized in a medium post or in a 20-minute podcast or or a half an hour video on on youtube so this is basically what i do when i when i hear about great business books i I google the author's name on spotify or look through youtube to kind of see some interviews of it but i definitely think reading and books are something that's been very transformative for me and i really try to read as much fiction as possible. And What I really enjoy reading, oftentimes mem- memoirs as well, something that connects history and uh, people's actual life, life experiences. Two books that I would recommend in, the, in this topic is a book called Persepolis by Marjane Satrabi. It's a graphic novel written by an, an Iranian artist, o- author that emigrated from, from Iran. And those books are hugely popular. There's also been a movie that was in the cinemas based on it, that I definitely would recommend for you to read. And the second book that I recently read that I really enjoyed was a book by Trevor Noah called Born a Crime, which describes his life growing up in during apartheid in South Africa. But of course, we also talked a lot today about the climate crisis. So I definitely want to recommend the last book by Bill Gates called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, which I truly enjoyed and I think is a great entry point for for anybody who's who's interested in this because he does he presents two really interesting topics one is the concept of the green premium which is the premium that we pay today on green technology on sustainable services and products that make it unaffordable for most people and what needs to be done to bring the price of those down so that they become the standards and so that we would naturally move toward a more sustainable world and the second concept is the concept of this 51 billion ton of greenhouse gases that is emitted into the atmosphere every year. And what it does is it breaks down that 51 ton into different categories and shows out of that total what comes from energy production, transportation, the food we eat, and so on and so forth, to really give you a tangible idea of where these are happening. And uh, it's Definitely a great read, and I would highly recommend
0: it. And you're leaving no opportunity to break tradition by suggesting a fiction book in this uh, section. All our past guests till now have always suggested nonfiction ones.
1: I do read a lot of fiction and I do read lots of architecture books, and then it just opens up your mind to what else is out there that is not about founding a
2: business. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but second question, what is the one or the two or three apps that everybody should download?
2: This is a diff- difficult question because contrary to popular belief, I think apps don't make your life easier. Sometimes it adds more clutter to your to your mind. And I definitely would recommend people to turn off the email notifications and delete social, social apps, something that I've done the last years and, you know, really, really happy about it. But one thing that I use late that I've used lately that I really enjoy is an app that called the Five Minute Journal, uh, which mm-hmm. is really built around the habit of gratitude and kind of like really writing down things that are that are you grateful for every day and f- beginning of the and the end of the day. And it really le- takes probably less than five minutes. And there has been research done around the power of gratitude and kind of to, to managing the mental health and happiness. And this is definitely something that I, I, I heard about on another part podcast that I've been using for the last couple of months, and I would highly recommend it.
0: Perfect. Then on the topic of podcasts, we've got to ask you, what is one podcast that everybody should listen to?
2: If again, if you're interested in the, all the innovation that is happening within sustainability, the future of energy, transport, there is a great podcast called Switched On that is produced by Bloomberg, mm-hmm. where they really mm-hmm. are covering all the different different topics and sometimes have these kind of a great in-depth discussions about technologies, about new waves that steel can be produced, or the various new regulations and laws that have been that have been uh, put in place by European Union or what's happening. And the second podcast that I thoroughly enjoyed, I've been listening to for years is one called Akimbo uh, by Seth Godin, which is a marketing guru, an American marketing guru that has written numerous books about marketing. And uh, it really is very short, 15 minutes podcast several, several times a week that give you a very good way to kind of really open your mind to new ideas.
1: What routine do you follow that you would also recommend to our listeners?
2: I think given this kind of advice, oftentimes I feel that I'm not the right person to answer it because I don't feel that there's anything, anything special about me, that my, my routines are pretty boring. I try to go to bed early. I try to take a long walk. I have, we have a dog that really allow, kind of forces me to get out get, get out of the house and go for walks on, on a regular, regular basis.
0: Okay, then uh, the last question in the toolbox is, who is an innovator with international roots who everybody should know about? And probably people don't know about him or her.
2: Actually, too many, too many to mention. But if I could pick one person that somebody who had the pleasure to to getting to know when I moved to Berlin is someone called Ali Albazaz, based in based in Berlin. He's a founder and CEO of a company called InKit. The company he found a company nine years ago where they help authors to really bring their writing into into the public. And if you have the opportunity to interview him, I think it would be. A very interesting story, because I know that when he set out the company nine years ago, they were working on something very different. And through the feedback and through the innovation cycles, really found this particular need where they managed to build a very large business around. I think what's given me personally the biggest lessons and most interesting aspects is to kind of getting out of my bubble. Getting out of your echo chamber and talking with people who kind of want to say the same things and to to, to sound right and and fiction is a great tool for that and mem- memoirs where it really kind of opens a new world in different realities in different wars, and different times where and it really helps you to understand that the problems that people dealt with many many years ago other generations are basically the same today many you know people still want to be safe they they want to be loved. And they want to be healthy and they want to spend having a good time with friends and family and have great experiences. That's pretty much it. And sometimes I think humans tend to overcomplicate things and reading fiction and especially memoirs and history books really gives you that aspect to kind of really bring everything together.
0: All right, then this question actually brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hesim. It was amazing to have this conversation with you.
2: I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
1: This season of Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Srajitsa Sakuja, ann Julia Kozlovskaya, and Miriam Schmidt. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends who might be interested in topics we discuss about Mostly Awesome. We'd like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is open for warm intros. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks.